Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Hey, how is your week going? Are you working in work that you love? Are you working in your calling? Do you just have a job? You know, we toss these terms around a lot. Vocation, career, calling, job. Sometimes we get confused about what those are. Had an interesting conversation just this morning in my Wednesday morning guys group about that very thing. You know, we all came to the conclusion that calling is a bigger picture. Any of us in that room, now we're all, you know, kind of old guys in there and we've all been doing our businesses for a very long time, but we know that we could change what we're doing today and still continue a productive, fulfilling life. We know we're not locked into doing just one thing. And I want you to understand you have the freedom to do the same. You know, life takes us down a path where we are uh, exposed to different opportunities, I mean, what you're a candidate to do at 45, you were not even a candidate to do when you were 25. Sometimes people think, well, I got to just find the right thing and just stay there forever. It's a one-time decision, especially if you superimpose on top of that the idea of this is God's calling for my life. Well, if you make God's calling so narrow that it confines you to just one job or one business, you probably have uh, taken a short view of what calling or fulfilled life is all about. Things change. Opportunities change. I'm excited about the new changes that are coming along. And I know that I'm a candidate for doing things now that I couldn't even have dreamed of five or six years ago. Things just keep changing so we can continue having a life that matters. But in as much as I talk about work being very important, and I certainly think that it is, I also think that it is simply one tool for a successful life. It shouldn't be the only thing that matters in our life. It shouldn't be the only thing that defines us or defines what our worth is in the world. Nope. A lot of other things contribute to that as well. And I hope you're making deposits of success that you want to make a fulfilling life and that you're doing, making those deposits of success in multiple areas of your life. Well, we've got a lot of interesting questions today, as always, going to continue the conversation about gambling and investing that I stuck my toe in last week. I had a lot of feedback about that. And we're going to talk about uh, how do you explain to a prospective employer why you're leaving your current job? Uh, going to be talking about uh, giving away your content for free if you're a writer. Uh, would you endorse a book just to get your name out even if you don't really believe in the book? So we got a lot of cool things to cover in today's podcast, so let's jump right in and get started on those. Now, last week I did have a question from a reader who asked if he could feel good about gambling or playing poker as a means of creating income, and I kind of fudged on it. It was an interesting question, I thought, but I related it to the fact that in many ways, I don't see it as that much different than investing in the stock market or doing day trading or playing commodities or or investing in real estate. I mean, those are all speculative things. There's no guarantees in any of those, and you're not risking any more, perhaps, than you are in playing a hand of poker. So if you understand it well, certainly 
you might be able to do that if you really manage it as a business. You probably aren't that far off from what a lot of the other people do in their businesses. Now, I had some uh, interesting feedback from that. I had notes from wives who are uh, fearful that their husbands are going to become addicted to gambling that it goes beyond just uh, making a little money on the side or even a sport it goes beyond that. Certainly that's a legitimate concern. But now I also see, well, let me, let me just, uh, one reader here, Ryan, who is a CPA said, I recently heard your podcast addressing the question about playing poker for a living, which brought up the question of whether investing is the same as gambling. Uh, I found a pretty nice extensive article about the difference between gambling and investing that I thought was interesting and insightful. The author makes some interesting points. Now, he, he has here, it's out of Investor Guide, and I'll put that link on the 48days.net link section for podcasts where you can go and read the article yourself. But here are some of the points in there. Perceived distinguishing characteristic. In investing, the odds are in your favor. In gambling, the odds are against you. Now, is that really true? In investing, are the odds in your favor? Well, ask some people who are invested in stocks in the last four or five years. Ask some people who invested in real estate. You know, are the odds in your favor? Well, it may have looked like that, but it may have turned out to be something different. Gambling, the odds are against you. Well, that's true in gambling, the odds are against you. We know that. But like in investing, the goal is to turn the odds in your favor. So if you can count cards or somehow track what's been going on, you can actually get the system to work for you in gambling. And I know people who do that repeatedly and do that very, very well. Another perceived distinguishing characteristic, gambling can be addictive and destructive, but investing can't. Well, I don't believe that that's true. I mean, yes, I do believe gambling can be addictive and destructive, but I believe investing can be the same kind of thing. Can it be addictive and and destructive? I mean, look at some of the people that got caught up in these investment schemes and then having lost their money, people put a gun to their head or jumped off a bridge. I mean, is that destructive behavior that came from their addiction to investing? Absolutely. I mean, anything done to an extreme can be done in an addictive manner. I mean, I know a young gentleman who approaches anything he does because of his addictive behavior. So while previously it was with drugs and alcohol and certainly things that were self-destructive, what he does now, he approaches in much the same way where he becomes intensely focused and go 36 hours without taking a shower, just focused on what it is that he's doing because he's got an addictive behavior. So that can be true whether somebody's in gambling or somebody who is investing. Another dis distinguishing characteristic, at least the perceived distinguishing characteristic, gambling is entertainment, investing is business. Well, again, I mean, gambling, if you want to look at it as a business, you could. But again, this is a, a sliding scale for what you perceive is gambling and what is investing. A lot of people go in and investing with the same sense that people go into gambling, where they're going to roll the dice and hope that things come out in their favor. Well, another another point here, and then I'll move on. Investing is saving for specific goals, such as retirement, while gambling isn't. Well, again, I've known people who do gamble regularly, who do it extremely well, and they have set aside money for retirement. I don't know, a guy who bought his mother a house 
but his income is from gambling because he does it extremely well. So again, I'm I'm not sure there's a fine, um, there's a clear distinction here to be had. You research and do what you think is appropriate. This morning in my guy's discussion, we, we discussed that you can do any kind of work and really make it holy or sacred. So we talked about the family, um, the uh, Kathy, Kathy family at Chick-fil-A. They've done a very ordinary business in a way that really makes them stand out. I mean, you walk into a Chick-fil-A restaurant and you kind of sense that there's a difference there. When you thank somebody, one of the young people that work there for something, they don't say, hey, no problem, dude. It's my job. You thank somebody there, they're going to say, it's my pleasure every time. That's part of their training. And when you go by Chick-fil-A on Sunday after church and notice that it's closed while the other places are open, it makes a statement. So there are a lot of things that are ordinary work that can be done in a way that really can fulfill your ministry or stand out in any way that you want it to do. Now, I'm not sure that can be said for everything. I mean, somebody had happened to bring in a box of Krispy Kreme donuts, and I said, can you make Krispy Kreme donuts and really believe that you're making a world a better place by doing that? So we had some interesting conversations about the things that you can do and those that perhaps you really wouldn't be able to hold your head high and do, even if you were doing it well, probably work that you would not want to do. Well, Tracy says, after reading the book, No More Dreaded Mondays, I started doing laundry for people without machines. With only a very small investment in laundry bags, detergent, and dryer sheets, I'm able to make some money on the side of my other two jobs. It's great being able to meet the needs of other people. They will pay for the convenience of not having to collect quarters, buy detergent, spend time doing their own laundry. Great, Tracy. And I admire you for what you're doing there. That's really cool. You know, there's so many simple services that could be turned into income. I mean, just think about the things that have already been turned into income. I mean, walking the dog, picking up groceries, cleaning the house, golly, taking clothes to the dry cleaner, washing the car, mowing the lawn, sitting with grandma, keeping the pool clean, changing the light bulbs. I mean, you could go on and on and on with the simple things that can be done where you can actually formalize those into a way to create income. Yesterday I was on with my buddy Dave Ramsey on his radio show and talked about ways that people can make money. We directed people to 48days.net and look for the yellow post-it note there because I have a free downloadable PDF with 48 business ideas that you can do. Most of them cost no money to get started, and a lot of them are just simple business ideas. Incidentally, in the first 12 hours after being on with Dave, we had 6,685 people who got that free download. Let you know people are looking for things that they can do. Now, the interesting counterpart to that, the follow-up to that is how many of those 6,685 people will take action on an idea? An interesting component as well is I will hear from some of those people who say, well, I went through everything there. That's fine. But none of those fit me. I talked to a young man in a store recently who said, Dan, I downloaded the PDF and went through there. And, you know, that's cool. But none of those ideas. And, and also I linked to another list of 999 ideas and another one of 101. So we're talking about well over a thousand ideas. The guy said, yeah, I went through all of those. But of course, none of those fit me because I'm a technology guy. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. How could you possibly not see 200 of those ideas where you can attach your technology skills to it and make it even better than anything I could describe? If you that readily reject 
hundreds and hundreds of ideas, you really need to go look in the mirror and ask that person there, what are the obstacles between my own two ears that are keeping me from seeing anything as being possible? At that point, it has nothing to do with the economy, has nothing to do with who's hiring, are we in a recession, depression, none of those things matter. What you have to recognize is there's something that's holding you back. Is it fear of failure? Is it the lack of knowledge? Is it the fear of ridicule of other people? If you fail, what is it? But try to get to the bottom of that because it's just not that tough to find an idea that can work. And what I was doing yesterday, incidentally, just to follow up on that, is encouraging people not to drop their job and go find the perfect career in one of these ideas, but simply to recognize, yes, there are ways you can create additional or starting income, if you don't have any, today. I mean, there are things you can do. I mean, I talked about a lady who went to Walmart and got a bucket and a squeegee for less than $5 investment. And with one of her children, went up and down one of the main thoroughfares here in the Nashville area, washing windows of businesses, and found that she could effectively make between 40 and $50 an hour doing that. You can do that. Anybody can do that. So let's start with that. You don't need a lot of money to start a business. You don't need a lot of expertise. You don't need degrees, licensure, certification. You just need to take action on something. So I want people to believe that they can do that. And that was kind of the final thought that I left with people yesterday. No matter what your situation, no matter what your circumstances, you can do something today to create income. Start with that, build on that. Then once you get a little bit of success, it opens a door. I mean, success breeds success. When you get a little bit of success, it gives you the confidence that you can get even more. And we see that. I mean, it's a whole lot more difficult to make your first $100,000 a year than it is the next $500,000 a year. It really is. It's tougher to get to that point because there are belief obstacles to get over. Once you get to that point and you see, wow, it is possible. I mean, it's like the old story of Roger Bannister running a four-minute mile. Prior to that, physicians said it could not be done, that the human heart would explode if you got close to a four-minute mile. Roger Bannister did that. And I think it was like in 1954 or something, as I recall, well, that immediately opened the door. I mean, in the next year, there were like 12 other runners who did that. There were eight college athletes at one track meet who ran a sub four minute mile. Now, what changed? You know, did human body evolve during that one year period of time? No, we simply changed the belief level. All of a sudden people realized, yes, it is possible. So the belief level changed, and sometimes some of us need that kind of experience. We need to have our belief level change so that we really do believe it is possible. So I encourage people to start with small things where they experience success, and it opens your eyes to the possibilities, and you can move up from there. Jen says, Dan, how do I answer questions about my current salary? On several company websites that ask you your current salary, and I feel funny just putting zero... If I'm asked outright, I don't want to stumble. I know you recommend putting off answering what my salary expectations are for the position being interviewed until the right time, but didn't know how to answer if they outright ask about my current salary. I've looked on your recommended salary websites and see that I'm currently in the lower part of my job pay as my hours have been cut by 10%. 
Uh, my position will most likely be downsized more, if not completely, by the end of the year. But I'm afraid if I state my current salary that the company with which I'm applying will offer me a similar salary. Bingo. You're right. Um, she says, I've been with my current employer 12 years, eight of those in the same position as an executive assistant in a medical clinic with 40 physicians. Also, do you have a list of common interview questions on your website? You know, frankly, I'm not even sure. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure there are, but I, I'm don't can't send you right to a place. But there's a search function on our 48 Days website right up in the top right-hand corner. You can put anything you want to, and it'll search the entire site for that. So if you put in interview questions, it's going to pull up places where I have mentioned that and give you ready answers. Now, as to your question about stating your current salary, if you're filling out an application online and they ask it, just go ahead and complete it. But you know from reading 48 Days to the Work You Love, if you're filling out applications online, you're in a real weak position anyway. And why do companies ask that? Because they want to have the cards in their hand, not in yours. It does give them an unfair advantage. And it does tend to perpetuate you being underemployed or underpaid, if that, in fact, has been true. That's why you don't want to go in on the front end with them knowing what you've been paid. So if you do the job search, like I want you to do it, where you're contacting companies prior to them advertising for positions, before you know that they have any opportunities there, it puts you more in the driver's seat to bypass that old standard process of filling out an application where they're going to ask that but it does put put them in the driver's seat no question about it so if you are an administrative assistant an executive assistant i know executive assistants that make twenty thousand dollars and i know executive assistants that make a hundred thousand dollars that term covers a broad spectrum of responsibilities and compensation so if you want to move from 20 to 50 yeah, you're going to be in a weak position if they know that you've been paid 20. So if you take the initiative and contact companies where there would be a potential match, then you send a cover letter resume, then you do the phone follow-up, that's where you bypass the traditional process of filling things out in advance, and you have an opportunity to sell yourself and your value where then they say, well, we have $35,000 budgeted for this position, and you can say, Based on my understanding of the responsibilities, I would see it more in the $48,000 range. Is that still within your budget? And if you have been interviewed and have gone through a process where they have decided, we like this person, we want Jen on our team, they'll find the other money to come up with and you can be in a much better position. Okay, here next question. Mario says, Dan, I appreciate the work you do. Quick question in the book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. It mentions sending an introduction letter and a cover letter. What's the difference? And it's, he says, when I'm sending these letters or resumes, that are best that I snail mail these or email them. Well, the process is changing. There's no question about that. For the most part, I still recommend using snail mail. Getting a piece of personal, physical mail is still a much more personal and professional process than emailing. Emailing, if it's unsolicited, is still an invasion. I mean, I do all kinds of things to hide behind email addresses, and it's amazing how creative people will get in every variation of Dan dot Miller, D Miller, Dan dot, and everything that Dan won, everything they can imagine will have people with, you know, 15 email addresses where they're trying to get it to my attention personal, personally. 
And when people do that, I mean, it really feels a little invasive. It's like somebody coming around to my house, looking at every window, hoping that they will see me and get my attention. It's just not a professional way to do it. So physical mail is still very acceptable and it really is the best way. Now, what's the difference between an introduction letter and a cover letter? With an introduction letter, you're not asking for anything from the recipient. You're simply saying, this is my background. I'm exploring new opportunities in this area. I'd love to have a chance to talk with you. What I'll do is in the next four or five days, I will forward my cover letter and resume to you and follow up at that time. So what you've done is you've laid the groundwork for this person to expect the next in a series, because what you want to do is you want to show up on their radar at least three times and you can do that and you can do that very professionally. So you send a cover letter just to set the stage where boom, Dan Miller. Ooh, I've heard that name before. So when it comes up again, we've started the process of creating what we call top of mind positioning, or there is even another term that describes it that's called reticular activator. And this is the process. If you buy a red Volvo, you're going to be amazed at how many red Volvos you see in the next 30 days. It's like, oh my gosh, everybody went out and bought one when I did. No, simply you having bought one increased your awareness and it's what we call reticular activator. So your eyes are seeing things that were already there, but really hadn't registered in your brain. The same thing is true when you're looking for a job. You want to create that top of mind positioning where your name registers because of the repetition. I mean, we, this is a marketing tool. We know that if you're selling Lazy Boy recliners, if we can get you to see or hear about those three times, your response rate goes up dramatically. We know that in marketing terms, if you have $1,000 to spend, don't spend $1,000 once on a billboard, spend $333 three times in some way because the repetition will get you much more response than just one time. So you send an introduction letter simply to start the repetitive process. Then four or five days later, you send the cover letter and resume. Then four or five days later, you do a phone follow-up. That gives you that three points of contact, and that's where we find the hidden job market, and that's where we find people bypass people with better credentials and work experience. It moves you right to the top. Debbie says, Dan, I've had five great jobs in the past 10 years, and I've been laid off from all of them due to downsizings, buyouts, takeovers, reorganizations, and company bankruptcies. I'm completely exhausted by all the job searches I've had to do, and I feel that the next job I get won't last anyway. What can I do to have a better attitude toward the job search and toward my future employer? I'm a good employee and get great performance reviews, but the companies that hire me keep going under. Golly, Debbie, I'm not sure I'd want to know that about you. If the companies you go to work for always go out of business, maybe it's you. Well, no, I'm sure it's not. I mean, this, you're just describing what is the real workplace environment at this point. Companies do come and go. There are companies that I'm helping build their kickoff where they are building in their own obsolescence four or five years down the road. Now, that used to be unheard of. A company would start and think that they're going to be the next Walmart or Ford Motor Company, and they're going to be here 100 years from now. That's not necessarily true anymore. We see companies that know they're taking advantage of a window of opportunity of some kind, and they're going to knock it out of the park and disappear. As an independent employee, 
you can expect to have about two years or so in the job place. So what you described, five jobs in 10 years, you're pretty much right on track. Don't expect that to change. Just be prepared for that. What that means is you need to always be clear on what your most marketable areas of competence are. What is it that you do really well? You need to see yourself as self-employed, no matter what. No matter if you choose to have one customer, which would be the description of a traditional job. But once you do that, you accept responsibility for where you are. You know your areas of competence. You know the value that those bring to any organization. Then if that customer disappears, it's easy to replace the customer. It's also easy to start thinking about what if I had five customers rather than just one where I'm giving each of these customers one day a week or I'm giving each of these customers, you know, three days a month, however you want to package that. What that does, that increases your security because then if one of those companies does go bankrupt or disappears, you have to replace 20% of your income, not a hundred percent. So you may want to look at that model. That would be just a subtle kind of change in the work model. It's not changing dramatically what you're doing, but it gives you more security and puts you more in the driver's seat. Here's a comment from uh, Todd who says, Dan, I'm a Christian author and speaker. I want to thank you for a discussion you had a while ago about social media. In that discussion, you mentioned Seth Godin's book, Tribes, which I went out and purchased, read cover to cover. The timing of his work was perfect as I was just beginning a new writing project, and he decided to incorporate the idea of my tribe in writing my next book. Now, in, in Seth's book, let me just insert, insert this here. In Seth's book, Tribes, he talks about building an audience and how you can do that and then how you can use your audience to give you feedback, help market your products, certainly purchase your own and so on. But it is it's a concept that we have used a lot in developing the 48days.net social networking site. Okay, Todd says his new book is titled Refined, Turning Pain into Purpose based on the tragic death of my daughter in June of 09. Wow. So here's what I'm doing. I'm going naked. He says, oh, don't gasp. It means that instead of closing the door and typing out the pages, I will open myself up, go naked, and share what I'm writing with my tribe via my website and blog. I began the Naked Writer Project. The premise is that I'm going to share large portions of each chapter of the book and invite others to share their comments, questions, scriptures, etc., The goal is not to have a one-sided view of the purpose of pain, but to elicit a conversation about God's grace in the midst of trials. Just started, but I'd love your feedback. Um, And he has his his own website, toddstalker.com, and wondered about my feedback on that. Well, I love the creativity, Chris. I think it's a great way to create the content for your book. Now, look back, and this is not really that new an idea. Now, Seth Godin really has made it popular. People like Chris Anderson, who wrote a book called Free, said that authors, musicians, and other information providers better get used to providing their content for free. Give it away. Well, the question is, geez, if I'm a writer, if I'm an author, how am I going to make money if I give away my content? Well, there are a lot of ways to do that, incidentally. And Todd, you can do the same thing. You can give away the content, like Chris Anderson talks about, to build an audience. Just like I mentioned that yesterday, I was on with Dave Ramsey, and in the first 12 hours, we had 6,685 people download the free PDF 48 
business ideas that's available on 48days.net, the yellow post-it note. Why would I do that? Well, what do you think is in that free PDF? There's all kinds of reasons in there to come back and visit the 48 Days sites to get involved in the 48 Days communities. Do you think that maybe it increases the trust and relationship with those people so that they feel a little differently about coming back to see what else Dan Miller has? Absolutely. I mean, we'll get a big percentage of those people who downloaded the free PDF, who come back and join the community, get involved there. What do you think happens the next time I introduce a new product or announce a new event or announce our No More Mondays cruise that we're going to be doing in February? Those people will say, wow, they're already part of the community. So you build an audience by doing that. And you can certainly do the same. Yeah, you're doing a great job by doing that. But but look at, even if we look back at some other proven models, look at Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mark Victor Hansen came out with Chicken Soup for the Soul. I have no idea how many years ago that was. He and Jack Canfield, they co-wrote that. They had this compilation of little stories. 33 publishers rejected them, say people don't care about these quaint little guideposty kind of stories. And then somebody decided, well, we'll go ahead and do a small run that did 5,000 copies initially. Chicken Soup for the Soul. And as you know, the rest is history. They've sold over 100 million copies of Chicken Soup for the Soul. How do they get content? People submit their stories. Mark Victor Hanser is not a writer, but he's a great, savvy business guy. And he compiles the stories that people submit into more and more books. So there's a lot of ways that you can have your audience help you create content as you go along. If you if you research, just Google um, Robert Kiyosaki, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He's got a new book, and he did it exactly as you're describing. He presented chapter by chapter and then got audience feedback for refining the concepts before he really released it. What do I do? I mean, I create a ton of content every day. Most of that you're going to see in newsletters or blogs. In that, blogs especially, you put a blog out there and you get immediate audience feedback. Those comments help me refine the content. When I want to produce my next book, I simply go back and start compiling all the content that I've already written in the form of blogs, improved by the people's feedback, and make it a better book instantly, knowing what people want from that. So you don't come out of the closet blind. Yeah, so what you're doing is a great idea, great way to do it. Well, here's an interesting question. I won't give the name, but this is a doctor friend of ours and a regular listener. And he says, in the past year, I've been gaining more and more popularity as a health expert in my field of hormone balancing and other specific health topics. Because of this, I've been in contact with and have become friends with some very influential people in the industry. A prominent health expert who I feel is very knowledgeable recently asked me to read his book and give an endorsement. I'm absolutely honored by this. Unfortunately, I'm about halfway through the book and, well, it's not very good. He goes too far into unproven techniques and methods that I do not agree with. I would love for my name to be associated with his. I may be in his book, which would be a boost for my coaching and my notoriety, but I'm not sure how to handle the endorsement. I don't agree with what he's written and don't feel it is best for his patients. Any thoughts? Thanks. Yes, indeed, I have clear thoughts about that, and I think you pretty well laid out the direction you need to go by how you've answered that. Don't endorse 
something that you don't believe in. Now, do people do that every day, a million and one times? When you see the celebrities who are endorsing products, whether it's a weight loss product or a new basketball shoe or a golf club or an automobile, you know that they're just getting paid big bucks to do that. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Not really. Everybody understands that. People know that they're being paid to say great things about their product. But for you to put an endorsement on a book, now you can do that. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of authors who simply endorse anything they're asked to. There are names who I won't mention, but I certainly could, of authors. You'll see their names on anything out there. Anything that's published, you'll see their name on it as an endorsement. Because they consider it that it's just a way to get expand their own marketing platform to get their own name out there. I'm much more selective than that. I do not endorse a book unless I really feel like it has value for the reader and is well written. That being said... I get four or five books a week with people asking either for a forward or an endorsement. I will do probably one or two of those. So I'm doing maybe 15 or 20% of what I'm asked to do in terms of endorsements for specifically the reasons that you're mentioning in your note. I don't feel like it's well done. I mean, I wrote a letter to a lady recently because I was really put off with her book in the way that she combined some things that I thought were really awkward to put together. And I wrote her a a nice letter explaining why I just would have no interest at all in doing that. And I often do that. I don't just say, nah, I don't have time. I usually give people honest feedback about why I'm not interested in endorsing their book. But then I do endorse a lot of books. But I think that I want it, I want, if my name is going to be on something, Frankly, I don't think it has that much to do with my marketing platform. It's not going to be a home run if I I could endorse a book by Zig Ziglar. And I don't know that it's going to do a great deal to expand my marketing platform. Now, perhaps it may. And I'm grateful that Zig has endorsed a couple of my books, incidentally. And I I take that very seriously. But I think that if you're going to hold your head high at the end of the day. I think you should endorse things that you really believe in. Certainly products as well. Now I get a lot of inquiries, a lot of requests to endorse certain products, software, books, and other other things on the podcast here. Now you notice that right now I am not doing that in any formalized way at all. Now, do I tell you about a book that I think is a great book that you ought to go get? Absolutely. If we have some resources for learning how to be successful as an eBay merchant. Am I going to tell you about that? Absolutely. But there's nothing that I'm being paid for. And this has gotten into kind of a gray area just recently, even as it relates to blogs, because there are FCC regulations now where if you promote something and you are going to be benefiting financially for that, you are required to disclose that. So theoretically, if I, in a blog say, I want you to go purchase my buddy Mark Victor Hansen's latest book. And I have a hyperlink to that where I'm going to get a 40% commission on the back end. I need to disclose that. And I'm going to start doing that. But again, the, the safest thing I've done for the most part is just not have those kind of relationships where I'm not doing that. Although I have hundreds of things on my websites that are hyperlinks where you do go through. I mean, I recently got 
an email that said, ka-ching, you just got a $1,375 commission. Well, I didn't even recognize the name of the company, but I did a little research and figured out that, in fact, I do have a link buried somewhere deep within the thousands and thousands of pages on my website where somebody purchased a very expensive training program and I got like a 33 and a third percent commission on that. And my commission was in fact $1,375. Now I know that I did not disclose clearly enough on there that that is the possibility for me. I need to do that. I mean, you, if you go to my reading list, you go to my recommended reading list, I love to recommend books. Books have impacted me greatly. And if you want to change your own level of success, there's nothing I can recommend that will change your success quicker than reading great books. So if you go to my reading list on my website, you're going to see a lot of books that I recommend and why on each one of those. Each one of those is linked. So you make the purchase through Amazon and once a month, Amazon puts a nice check directly into my checking account. I don't disclose on there that I get compensation if you purchase a book through that link. I need to go do that. And as we're launching our new website, I'm making notes here as I think about them, things that I do need to do. So you need to disclose if you're benefiting, but if you're endorsing something, I would recommend that you endorse something that you really do, in fact, believe in, that you think anybody who reads that is going to benefit in a very positive way. Corey writes a a note in the subject line in his email is bats always turn left when exiting a cave. And he says, Dan, what's the subject have to do with this email? Nothing. I don't even know if it's true. I just wanted to get your attention. So you'd read my email. <laughs> well, Hey, I love it. Uh, I, I never tire of the creative things that people do to get noticed and get attention. Nothing wrong with that at all. Now, Corey goes on. I'm a registered nurse with my master's of nursing and occupational health. My expertise is wellness and I want to develop, implement and manage wellness programs for employers. I also want to incorporate financial Dave Ramsey and career wellness, Dan Miller into my programs. Do you think this is a viable option? At what point can I consider myself an expert in the field? I've worked as an occupational health nurse for about one year. Yes, I think it's a very viable option for you to do that. Employers are eager to have health and wellness programs for their employees. I mean, we all know that having healthy people, uh, they create better work. They they do better work. They have they're they're less costly to an organization. They bring more creativity. They stimulate the creativity of those around us. I mean, we we want people who are healthy, so that's a very viable option. At what point can you consider yourself an expert? Trust me, as a registered nurse with a master's of nursing and occupational health, you are an expert. You are, you am, you be, go do it. You don't need to worry about, you need to put in 10 years before you can be an expert. Now, if you've got that kind of credentials behind you and years of working experience, you are an expert. I mean, I tell people you can become an expert in any field if you read three books and one particular topic. You're going to know more than 98% of the people walking around the face of the earth. So go ahead and position yourself as an expert. Trust me, if you don't consider yourself one, nobody else is going to call you that. So make yourself the expert. I have people who choose domain names or in coaching, they call themselves America's small business success coach. I mean, whatever, grandiose titles. I always get a chuckle out of that. And I think rock on, go for it. Call yourself something great so that it really does position you as an expert. 
Michael says, now this is an interesting kind of layout. L- listen to this. Dan, er, Michael says, love your show. I'll get right to the point. Can you suggest some reasons to put in a cover letter and use in an interview about why I'm leaving my current position? I've read that you should never badmouth your current former employer. Here are the real reasons I want to leave. Now, Michael is listening here. Mike, you're listening. Your five reasons you really want to leave. Number one, the management philosophy is one of hear no evil, see no evil. In other words, if they don't hear about a problem, there is no problem. If you bring up a problem, you are the problem. Number two, employees are treated completely unfairly. Some can get away with working two hours a day, literally, if they're minorities or get drunk with a boss on Fridays, while others are expected to work eight hours a day. Number three, it's a dead-end job. Everything is based on how long you've been in the department, and I'm fourth in line. Number four, I'm an improvement person. But everything here is just status quo and just get by. Number five, there have been multiple waves of layoffs over the past two years. I'm firmly convinced they'll close my department in two years. I'd rather find a lifeboat than go down with the Titanic. Uh, Michael says, uh, the good news is I've been able to save a six-month emergency fund. I'm vested my IRA. The bad news is I knew this job was a bad fit. My first week here, and that was four years ago, I make enough money to be complacent, but each weekend gets shorter and each week gets longer. So what are some good reasons to get my target company list about why I'm looking? All right, and let me just confirm once again, very clearly, plain, bold letters, banner flying behind an airplane. Everything you've listed here is negatives, and absolutely don't use these at all in interviewing for a new position. Now, even if you think these are accurate observations, these are negatives, and a new company really expects that you're going to see the same things in their company. Now, this is just, you know, we know this is true. Now, just think about it for a minute. People tend to see the world with the same eyes, even if the geography changes. Now, I coach people who say they've been in, you know, five jobs that stink. Gee, their marriage stinks. The church are going to stinks. And I am very quick to point out to them, what is the common denominator in all of these rotten circumstances you describe? It's you, man. It's you, girl. Companies expect that a person is going to bring their same view, their same perspective, their same biases with them that they had at a previous company. So it would be to your detriment totally to list all these things that you see as negatives, even if you're 100% convinced they're accurate. And they may be. Just don't use those. Now, what are the, and with those, if you bring those up, trust me, the safest bet for a prospective employer is to not hire you to go on to the next candidate. Because when it comes right down to it, companies hire people they like. Not just people who have proven their competence or have great degrees or background experience. No, they hire people they like. And people who complain and are negative, criticize, condemn, and complain are not people that are likable to be around. So you're going to want to present yourself as somebody they want to have on their team. There are plenty of reasons for leaving. That's not a red flag. You can say, I feel like I've done everything that I can here. I'm ready to advance my career. I'm looking for new opportunities. Well, give me a new challenge. Man, you're out of there. I mean, you can say, you know, with the changes in this particular industry, I'm exploring opportunities in related industries, but not something specifically in this category that seems to be struggling across the board. 
I mean, you can create all kinds of great reasons for you to be looking without ever saying anything negative about your current company or position. All right, Charlie says, Dan, I'm lucky. I love what I do, but I have, and I have a brief case of success and a trunk full of failures. <laughs> All right. Hey, that's cool. A brief case of success and a trunk full of failures. Okay. Sounds cool. I think I have something to share, but the target market being preachers fresh out of college is noted for being underpaid and resource poor. How do I coach them while not adding a burden to the very thin budgets they have while being compensated so I can put the time into their coaching that quality demands? Charlie. There's a couple ways to approach this, Charlie. You want to you serve, and I can hear your heart. You really want to help these preachers who are fresh out of college. Now, I'm not sure exactly how you're going to help them, but let's just assume you have a, a valuable service to provide to them in coaching them. There are a lot of ways to do this. You can have a traditional job that provides your income needs, so that's taken care of, and you do this as a volunteer. Nothing wrong with that at all. A lot of people are living out their passion in something in a way that doesn't provide their income, and they have something else that's worthwhile. They can hold their head high, even if it's not their true passion, but it's a reasonable tool for a successful life. And so that may look like a traditional job where you make enough income to meet your family needs. So you can do this as a volunteer. And if you really want to help you know, kids in the ghetto learn to play basketball well, to teach them the fundamentals of basketball, don't try to make that an income producing project. Just do that as a volunteer and do something else to keep your needs met. I mean, even Apostle Paul in the Bible was a tent maker. He talks about that a lot. He didn't want to depend on the people that he was serving for his income. He was a tent maker. He did that to provide for his own needs. So we'd have the freedom to help those people in a way that he thought best, even if he had to give them a message they didn't want to hear. Now, that's another story. We go there. Most preachers today don't have that luxury. They better say what the people in the pews want to hear because those people are paying their mortgage. They're an employee of the people they're preaching to. So it removes that ability to speak the truth if it's something that they may not want to hear. Now, let's go back. That's another uh, topic for another day, but let's go back to your question here. How can you do this? So you can have a job that produces your income and do this just as a volunteer. That's one. You can do seminars and workshops rather than one-on-one coaching. You can create an instructional audio program for these people. You can write a book. I mean, you write a book, so you have something, you have all your principles laid out for things they need to know, and it's something they can buy for 15 bucks, rather than what you would have to have for personal one-on-one coaching. So you work the law of numbers. So there are a lot of ways to get your message out there. Look for creating multiple streams of income, which is a model I use in my business, so you can create income in multiple ways and still serve the clientele that you want to serve. But sometimes, just like I talked about, if you want to teach basketball fundamentals to kids in the ghetto, don't try to make that your income stream. If the market is poor already and has thin budgets, find another way to create income or use the economy of scale by having something where you can service a lot of people in ways that don't involve your personal time. Well, speaking of time, we are out of it. Well, let me do one more, one more real quick here. It's quick and easy. Dan, uh, this comes from John. Dan, I love what you do. Or, uh, uh, I love 
What I love to do is evangelize. I go to the streets, pass out tracts, preach, talk with people, feed the homeless, pray with people. Only problem is that I have no income from this, but would like some. How can I use this passion to create one? Well, here's what I would suggest. Don't try to turn that. I mean, don't try to charge 10 cents for your tracts that you want to hand out to people. Go ahead and do that. But if you are a kind of person that likes to go out on the street and pass out tracts, preach, talk with people, feed the, feed the homeless and pray with them, my gosh, I can line you up with 20 companies today that would love to talk to you. Someone who has the personality to go out, not afraid of rejection, not afraid to knock on doors, not afraid to go into new territories. I mean, most any company in the world out there would love to talk to you and have you promote their product. So find something where you have the same kind of passion and fervor about it where you can go out and really share with people. I mean, you could go with Southwestern uh, Publishing, the company that sells Bibles and instructional materials to families, and they give you a territory, and boom, you can go out here and knock it out of the park and make $10,000 a month doing that and still have free time to do just your raw street evangelism that you're doing. So use the same kind of personality skills you describe here that allow you to do that well, but use those same things to align yourself with a product and a company where you can also create the income that you need. Great question. Golly, lots of great questions. I'm going to be putting some new tips up under the podcast link on 48days.net. Just resources that I reference because of your questions here and resources you all send me. So there's a growing library there of things that can help you in this path that you're on. Well, speaking of path that you're on, I trust that this has been a great week for you, that you are on a path that you know is leading to the light that you want to come into more fully and that you, in fact, are finding or creating not only the work that you love, but the life that you love. Have a wonderful week. This is Dan Miller, your host. See you next week.